Well, good morning again, 59th Street family. Welcome uh, those of you who are joining us a little bit later today to our worship, uh, uh, sorry, to our worship service. And today we're going to continue our sermon series, Living Testimony, uh, where we explore how the Christian faith is meant to be a testimony that's proclaimed not just through our lips, but also through our lives as well. And now last week, we kind of started our series off by covering the importance of John's firsthand experience of Christ, right, where John invites all people, whether those who have fallen from the faith, those who are kind of teetering on the edge, he invites all of them to once again experience fellowship with them, but also fellowship with God as well. But the thing is, before we're able to kind of have that sort of fellowship, there's something critical that John encourages us to do first, and that is recognizing the importance of repentance and also the importance of receiving forgiveness as well and the power that comes from receiving forgiveness. This kind of illustrates our, our point about the power of confession and forgiveness. I want to draw our attention uh, to the late Anglican Archbishop, who will be on the screen uh, shortly. Uh, this is we can just, yes, there we go. This is the Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who unfortunately passed away in 2021. And he was a prominent South African cleric, theologian, and also a Nobel Peace Prize winning human rights activist. And he's well known for his work in fighting against the apartheid. Now, just as a kind of quick history recap, um, apartheid in South Africa, it was basically a system of institutionalized racism uh, through 1948 and into 1990s. And in the early 90s, Tutu, he was appointed as the chairperson of something called the Truth Reconciliation Commission, the Truth Reconciliation Commission, or the TRC uh, for short. And he was specifically tasked to see the investigation of gross human rights violations that happened during the apartheid. Now, what most people would expect from an organization that oversees or looks into injustice, we would expect that they would bring people to court, put them on the stand, and have them be punished for their crimes. But that's not what Desmond Tutu wanted to accomplish. Tutu wanted the truth to be revealed for all to see and to hear. And so Tutu, he would invite victims, to, of course, to come forward to speak about the injustices done to them. But even more striking, he would also ask perpetrators, criminals, to come forward to confess their crimes as well. And in order to encourage perpetrators to confess their crimes, right, you would think like, why would I want, why would I want to confess my crimes? I, I get you know, sent instantly into prison. And so in order to encourage these people to confess their crimes, the TRC offered amnesty to those who committed awful uh, human rights violations, provided that these people gave a full confession of their wrongdoings and showed genuine remorse for their actions. And so as they confessed their crimes, none of it would be held against them. And so that's basically what amnesty means. They were totally pardoned for the crimes that they committed. Of course, you know, these people, some of them took advantage of this amnesty process, um, but other perpetrators, they actually gave a genuine confession. They actually began to realize that what they did during the apartheid was wrong. 
And things, our normal reaction to this is, is that, man, this guy's crazy, right? Like, why would you let people who commit horrendous crimes that damage the lives of individuals and families, how can you just let them get away with it? But the reason why Tutu gave this amnesty so freely, even to people who took advantage of it, is that he, as a Christian, he understood the power of confession and the power of forgiveness. He understood that as people openly confess their wrongdoings and receive forgiveness, there is actually now an opportunity for a new start, a fresh start. There's a possibility of a new relationship that is no longer ruled by anger and hatred. Now, as Christians, we too are also called to live out these two elements of confession and forgiveness, and we'll see shortly that it is through these two elements that we begin to find freedom for ourselves and also a possibility of a new and restored relationship as well. And so let's take a look at that in our passage today, which comes from 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 5 to 10. And this is the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. It should bring our minds back to John 3.16 that we read earlier. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, in our passage here, we kind of see this dual theme of light and darkness, and John, he actually encourages all of us to, quote-unquote, walk in the light. So let's take a look at that as our first sermon point today, walking in the light. Now, what does it mean to walk in the light? Uh, and maybe to kind of unpack this a little bit more, what is darkness indicative of? Uh, if we look at verse 5, uh, which we'll see in the next slide here, uh, we see that John describes God as someone who is light. And throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, light was always used as a kind of a symbol of God's glory, a symbol of God's presence. It's seen as something that is pure. Light is seen as something that is holy. And so if light is representative of purity, of holiness, then darkness is clearly the opposite, right? Darkness is then symbolic of unholiness or even moral blindness. And so to walk in the light is basically a call for us to all walk in God's holiness and God's righteousness, to adorn ourselves with purity and innocence and to literally become Christ-like. But there's a problem, right? As much as the light is something that is life-giving, as much as it kind of illuminates our path, God's light or God's holiness also at the same time exposes us. It exposes 
our sinfulness and our wrongdoings, right? And that's why the scriptures are sometimes so offensive because as we encounter a totally holy, a totally perfect God who is morally righteous in every way imaginable, when we encounter such a person, such a God, we begin to see how far we have fallen, how unholy we are in comparison to this holy God. And because of this, John, he kind of keeps reiterating throughout this entire passage that it is entirely incompatible to attempt to have fellowship with God while living or walking in darkness or walking in sin. It is impossible to be in a fellowship or partnership with a perfectly holy and righteous God while being morally contemptible ourselves. And so the question is, what are we supposed to do about this? And I find it interesting sometimes when I speak with people concerning uh, this topic of God's holiness or God's, just, uh, or ju- uh, God's justice, uh, that sometimes people will respond, well, can't I make up for it by doing X or Y, right? If I, if I start going back to church or if I volunteer in some ministry, I'll, I'll get right with God, right? Or maybe I'll try to get right with God through charity or something along those lines. Now, of course, those things are all good things to do, and we encourage you to do them. But the issue is we can't make up for our sins. The damage, unfortunately, is already done. You can't cover up an already broken relationship. And so the only thing you can do is say, I'm sorry. It's always easy to try to do things to kind of cover up our wrongdoings, but saying these three simple words, I'm sorry, seems to kind of take up every single ounce of our strength, doesn't it? And it rightfully should, because recognizing our wrongdoings requires an extraordinary amount of humility, because we're effectively saying through those simple words, we're saying this, you know what? I am wrong. I am at fault. I am the one who has hurt you. And this is the attitude that we should have when it comes to confessing our wrongdoings to God. It first requires us to admit that we are wrong. We have done something wrong. And throughout the passage, we see John reiterating the point that we should not lie to ourselves. We should not be so crass to gloss over our wrongdoings, nor should we deceive ourselves by rejecting the truth of God's message that our state as human beings are, by nature, sinful and unclean. And the thing is, to admit that about ourselves requires extraordinary humility. But when we take a clear inventory of our lives, when we actually reflect and journal and think about our lives, at the end of the day, we really have to ask ourselves, do I still want to walk in the darkness? Do I still want to walk in sin? Have we tasted and seen enough bitterness in our lives that we are willing to bring all of this to God through confession and really begin the process of walking in God's holiness and God's righteousness? And although our sinful nature is a painful truth to embrace, the passage we read also provides us a tremendous hope as well. That as we confess 
our sins to God, we are forgiven and cleansed. Uh, in 1 John 1, 1.9, John tells us, right, this is a famous passage. Most of us must, must have memorized this at some point in our lives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But what does it mean to forgive in the first place? We talked about confession, right? The humility, the, the, the necessity to talk about our wrongdoings and to admit it. But what about the other side? What does it mean to forgive? Uh, if we turn our attention back to Archbishop Desmond Tutu, after witnessing acts of genocide and literally torture, um, he was asked, in one interview, he was asked, what do you actually do when you forgive someone? And of course, the interviewer, he was kind of trying to drive at the point, how do you forgive someone who has done so much evil and so much harm in the world? And Tutu responded by saying this, when you forgive, you are saying, I am abandoning my right to revenge. By the fact that you have abused me, you have given me a certain right to retribution or revenge, that I can kind of take it out against you. But when I forgive, I jettison that right, and I open the door of opportunity for you to make a new beginning. And that is what I do when I forgive you. And in the gospel message, that is the type of forgiveness we receive. When we sin, when we hurt others, when we do things that are an offense to God, we are giving God the right to deliver justice and judgment to our lives. And what people often get wrong about God is they ask, you know, why can't God just kind of like forget about it or kind of just like calm down with all this judgment, just like dial it down a bit? And the answer to that is, if God is truly a just God, if he actually takes justice seriously, then people, unfortunately, must pay for their wrongdoings. We, as humans, we have no problem criticizing the justice system when people get away with awful and heinous crimes. But the moment when we come face-to-face -face with our own shortcomings, with our own wrongdoings, when we come face-to-face -face with the reality that there is a judge, we suddenly desire, and we suddenly wish that God didn't take justice seriously. And the reason we begin to desire this is because it is at that precise moment that we realize that we are held accountable for our actions and that there are consequences for our wrongdoings. But the overtly gracious message we see in Scripture is that we don't actually receive the consequences of our own actions. God's justice still exists. God is still a just God who takes ethics and morality extremely seriously, but what we see is that God's justice and judgment are not delivered to us. Rather, what we learn is that Jesus bore that for us on the cross. Jesus took the judgment we rightfully deserve, and that is how extraordinarily much God loves us. God willingly jettisons the right he has for retribution against us and instead sends that retribution against his own son, to, that his own son should bear our punishment on our behalf. In Christ on the cross, he willingly did this. He willingly takes on our punishment because he knows that it is 
through his sacrifice that we are truly forgiven and we are truly reconciled back to God. That through his blood, we are purified from all sins. And the wonderful thing about this forgiveness, it's not something that we have to do. It's not something we have to earn or deserve. In fact, we neither can earn it nor deserve it. But what we see is that although God is indeed a God of justice, he is also a God of immeasurable love. We see that God's love for us is so immeasurable that he does not desire to see us suffer the consequences of our own actions, but he even bears it on our behalf. Lately, I've been going through um, the book The Prodigal God by Tim Keller uh, with someone, and I'll be honest, I actually never really knew what the word prodigal meant. Um, I just thought about, you know, like, prodigal, oh yeah, sure. Of course I know what that means. I actually never knew what it means. Um, but in the introductory chapter, if you flip a few pages after that, Tim Keller, on kind of like a blank page, he puts a definition of prodigal. And it means someone who is recklessly extravagant. Someone who has spent everything. And I think this is such an accurate description for God. Because we learn that he really is a God who recklessly spends everything on us. He's the one who forgives without measure, blesses us when we do not deserve us, when we do not deserve it, and grants us the free gift of salvation while we are still sinners. And because of the fact that we are forgiven and given salvation, we're now given the opportunity to step out of the darkness of sin and begin to walk in the light, which is God's holiness and righteousness. In fact, we're called, actually, to walk in this light together. Now, our passage here, it, it doesn't necessarily emphasize this fellowship aspect too, too, too much, but if we kind of take into context last, week message, last week's message of John's desire to have fellowship amongst those who have left the faith or are close to it, uh, we see that to walk in fellowship with God also requires us to walk in fellowship with each other. Now, taking that into consideration, uh, what does it mean then to walk in the light together? Now, I think there are two important considerations to take into mind here. And the first consideration, as you can see, is that we are to confess our sins to one another. And sometimes I find it interesting that we're, we're more willing to confess to God, we're more willing to confess to the holy and righteous judge of the universe, um, who can literally like recreate the universe uh, you know, at whim. We're more willing to confess to this God than we are to each other. I found that to be pretty interesting. But the reason why we need to confess our sins to each other is that we have to take ownership of our wrongdoings, especially if it means we have hurt another person. We need to take responsibility for our actions because more often than not, our wrongdoings are directed towards each other sitting here today. Uh, we often say things we definitely should not. Uh, we often take actions against one another, uh, whether it's in a manner that is outrightly sinful or whether we kind of just do petty things to annoy one another or to aggravate one another. And the thing is, we have to take ownership 
of these actions and openly come before the person we have hurt and to confess our wrongdoings. And when we do so, we open ourselves up to accountability and for the possibility of receiving forgiveness and restoration. But it's important not just to confess sins that we have done to each other, but also to express some of the sins that we are struggling with. And we're invited also to share those sins with one another as well in order to, again, hold each other accountable. In 1 John 1.7, John tells us that if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And fellowship with one another is an essential part of what it means to walk in God's truth and righteousness. Last week, I mentioned we are not to walk on this journey alone, but as a body of believers where we are able to encourage one another, able to support one another and hold each other accountable in our walk with God. And so if confession is part of what it means to walk in the light together, then the second consideration is that we're also to forgive one another as well. Earlier, I quoted Desmond Tutu when he said that forgiveness is abandoning one's right to revenge or retribution. And sometimes for us, it's, it's incredibly hard to do that, right? Because we, we feel we have a certain right to hurt that person back. We think that if, if this world is truly fair, we should be given the opportunity to hurt the other person as much as we have been hurt, right? That is, after all, the whole point of the justice system. But the thing is, when we look at the God we worship, the God we are to mold ourselves after, we see that he is a God who forgives. We look back at the gospel story and we see Christ on the cross praying to the Father that as Christ was being tortured and murdered in one of the most inhumane ways possible, he turns to the Father and says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. We see a God who has the power to end lives, end the universe in a single word. He can take vengeance on people who hurt him, but yet he chooses to be beaten. He chooses to be bruised, shamed, and abused. And the reason why Christ does all of this is that it is only through forgiveness that the possibility for a restored relationship is made possible. And it is only through forgiveness that the people who crucified him can also have a fresh start and a new start in their relationship with God. And of course, the same thing applies for us as well. We're called to forgive, not because it's some sort of power play to kind of claim the moral high ground, but we're called to forgive because it is our genuine desire to mend and to restore a broken relationship. It is an offer, an opportunity for the other person to make a new start as we forgive the past and mutually look forward to a better future, to a better beginning. It's a way for us to make the gospel of God's forgiveness tangible in our lives. And so as we kind of come to the end of our sermon, we're called, once again, to realize the meaning of our sermon series of being a living testimony. That as we have experienced the reality of our own sinfulness, as we develop the humility to acknowledge our wrongdoings, we're also called to have the humility to bring our sins before our fellow brothers and sisters here today, especially to those whom we have hurt. 
But not only that, but as we experience the unmerited forgiveness that comes from God, we are called to demonstrate that type of love, that type of forgiveness to each other as well. And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage us all to let our lives be a living testimony, that as people encounter us, they can see and experience the fact that we model the same forgiveness and grace that comes from Jesus Christ. And so let us all, let us all walk together in the light of God. Let us walk in his truth, walk in his righteousness, but let us do it as one body, as one family. But for now, why don't we spend a moment and come together uh, for a period of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we just want to thank you that your forgiveness is, is given to us just so generously and so freely. You indeed extravagantly spend everything you have on us. You give it to us even though we take advantage of it, even though we take advantage of your grace. But Lord, we recognize that through your forgiveness, uh, you have called us your sons and your daughters. You have adopted us into your family. That through the sacrifice of your one and only son, you have brought us home to be your children. And so let us rest in that peace. Let us rest in that grace. Let us rest in the forgiveness of sins. And as we find rest in it, let us model that to our friends and to our families. Let us confess our sins to one another, but also let us forgive one another as you have forgiven us. Lord, we, we thank you for what you have done in our lives. We thank you that you have called us home and have brought us here. And we just pray that you'll continue to bless us and to continue to call us into Christ's likeness. And I pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.